With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we have this week's almond update on how plant bugs are becoming significant pests for almond growers. But our top story today, the change in opinion as farmer and rancher delegates to the American Farm Bureau Federation's 105th convention adopted policies to guide the organization's work in 2024. Key topics range from artificial intelligence to labor to crop insurance. Recognizing the challenges of maintaining a strong agricultural workforce, delegates voted to stabilize wage rates for guest workers and revise the H-2A and H-2B programs. In a reversal to previous policy, AFBF delegates decided it may accept caps on the number of visas for a year-round agricultural worker program should such an immigration deal come up in Congress. This is reversed to its years-long stance of opposing caps on labor visas to ensure the number of workers needed for crops around the nation. This year, delegates argued that agreeing to a cap gives the AFBF a voice in the debate and would lead to a more favorable outcome than remaining against or even neutral to the idea. Some delegates remained firmly against the idea of accepting caps. However, the majority voted to change the official policy. Only a couple of months left to make a choice between two Farm Bill programs. David Geiger has this report. The recent Farm Bill extension means producers have a March 15th deadline to make a decision between the Agriculture Risk Coverage and Price Loss Coverage programs, known as ARC and PLC. Steve Johnson, a retired Iowa State University Extension Farm Management Specialist, says it's been running for about 10 years now, and in that time, reference prices have not changed. $3.70 a bushel on corn, $8.40 on beans. The weighted average cash price for the entire marketing year had to be below those levels, 370 corn and 840 beans. But because they use an Olympic average calculation and they're using 18 to 22 prices, both ARC PLC will see higher prices being used to calculate these payments, which is good for farmers. The new ARC PLC adjustment has corn at 401 and soybeans at 926. Johnson thinks that should make the system more attractive. However, there is a big decision that he says should be made before choosing ARC or PLC. Crop insurance, that's the big safety net. Um, So I think working early with your crop insurance agent is recommended because we're going to see a drop in the projected price, that simple average price in the month of February. And that drop compared to last year is going to be probably more than a dollar a bushel for corn and $1.75 for soybeans. So I think a lot of people are going to be scrambling, saying, hey, I can figure out how to increase my revenue guarantee. If I stay with the same product, the same level of coverage, uh, I'm way short of guaranteeing any sort of profit. One crop insurance decision, according to Johnson, farmers cannot take alongside the ARC County program. That is the supplemental coverage option, known as SCO. If you are going to buy this county-based endorsement. It uses your county yields. It sits on top of your uh, revenue protection decision. So if you're trying to increase your revenue guarantee, you might want to buy SEO, but you've got to be in the PLC program. So I think you start by going through the numbers, walk in with that information to your crop insurance agent. A lot of them have really powerful tools, and they're going to be able to look at both the crop insurance decision and whether you're going to purchase SEO And then what would that mean? Johnson says there are tools at the Iowa State University Extension website. You can search online ISU Ag Decision Maker and click on Farm Bill Decisions. Again, there is a March 15th deadline for ARC PLC. 
I'm David Geiger. USDA is on course to continue expanding crop insurance for more products and more producers. Here's Gary Crawford. Experts say climate change is handing farmers more severe weather disasters more often than in the past. And so it's important for us to continue to focus on risk management, on crop insurance. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack speaking to the Farm Bureau Convention in Salt Lake City, Utah this week. He said that he had met earlier with Farm Bureau state presidents. And I shared with them our commitment to expanding crop insurance. Vilsack said 30 years ago, only a handful of crops were covered by insurance. Today, 134 crops are covered. 604 varieties are covered. 34 plans. $207 billion in production is protected through this mechanism. Last year, crop insurance policies paid out to farmers $12 billion of indemnity payments and $19 billion in 2022. These are what Vilsack calls life-saving payments. Vilsack says USDA is continuing to expand availability of crop insurance to more products, more producers. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's National Spotlight, data from last year can help farmers pick the right hybrid for 2024. Michael Clements reports. Each year, AgriGold ranks its Field GX genetic families by overall performance. Steve Shaney, AgriGold product manager based in northern Iowa, says the purpose of the ranking is to showcase how much the leaderboard changes from year to year. Yeah, our goal overall with the Field GX platform is not necessarily to rank these hybrids and point out a superior family, but what we strive to do is help farmers understand the why behind the performance. Why did family H perform best in 2023? You know, one thing we know for sure is that no year is the same. We don't expect these families to perform or repeat themselves year over year. In fact, internal testing within our own brand shows us that we have 11% chance of repeating this the following year. So what we want to do is help understand the why behind it. Shaney says in 2023, AgriGold's field GX Family H rose to the top. He explains why. Family H truly had an outstanding year. And a lot of that's because within that family, we have some hybrids that are broadly adapted to a lot of environments and a lot of different soil types. Not only did Family H have an outstanding year, but they're built up with some offensive hybrids that really excelled because they got the right weather with the right management all at the right time. Shaney recommends farmers use the annual rankings of Field GX families as a report card to think back on why things turned out the way they did. We want farmers to understand what worked well last year, help understand the why behind it. And as we evaluate last year, now's a great time to go through all your crop scouting notes, analyze any harvest data that you may have, and start to fine-tune this plan for next year. And Field GX is a big part of that fine-tuning and getting the hybrids right, per se. We also need to think about some of the challenges that we're going to face next year and adapt our plan to help meet around those. Some of the biggest challenges that I'm going to be thinking about this year are things like corn rootworm pressure, not only drought stress, but also soil moisture levels and things like that. Another opportunity out there or challenge that we may have is going to be tar spot pressure, whether it be good or bad next year. Shaney wants farmers to spread risk by planting hybrids from several genetic families. He provides tips. Yeah, mitigating stress in today's world is critical. And one of the best ways that we have to do this today is by planting genetic diversity. Whether it be in our corn crop or soybean crop, that is going to be their most effective and first tool that we should utilize. Within AgriGold, we have a very intuitive and easy way to do that, and that's why we use Field GX for that. 
it's critical for a farmer to have a genetically diverse crop and utilizing a platform like Field GX makes it very easy for the farmer to pick out which families adapt to their management style and how they can maximize yield within each one of those products. For support selecting hybrids from several genetic families, reach out to your local Agrigold agronomist or visit agrigold.com. Michael Clements reporting. As the cold air of the past few days is pushed out of the country, taking its place are above normal temperatures over the next week or so. Rod Bain has more. The nation's cold snap of recent days is about over. All of a sudden, that cold air is utterly disappearing. A few days ago, we started seeing warmer weather overspreading the western U.S., and now that warmer air is making a quick trip across the central and into the eastern United States, helping to flush out any of that remaining bitterly cold air. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says the warmer weather also comes with above-normal precipitation in various parts of the country, as well as the increased chance of flooding. Between now and the end of the week, we are expecting two significant storm systems across the south that could lead to precipitation totals anywhere from two to eight inches or more from eastern Texas to the central and southern Appalachians, also extending as far north as the Ohio Valley. Rippy adds active weather could develop later this week along or near the Gulf Coast. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, let's take another look at USDA's reports released last week. USDA's Rod Bain shares more on the hogs and pig report, pork production and price forecasts. Pork production is expected to continue to increase this year per USDA's January forecast. According to World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekodowski and December's quarterly hogs and pigs report. A larger size of the pig crop that was reported and farrowing expectations as well as expectations for pigs per litter going forward. All of that works through to suggest higher pork production in 2024. This month we raised that 240 million pounds and that would be up 670 million pounds year over year. Correlating with the expected production increase, lower hog prices for this year. USDA's latest forecast shows a $2.25 decline from the previous month, with 2,024 hog prices now expected to average $57.75 per hundredweight. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Diving into another market segment, World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekanowski discusses poultry production and price forecasts. In terms of the poultry markets, broilers and turkey, we're mainly looking at hatchery data, and that's suggesting broiler production up. We increased it for 2023 and expect that to carry through into 2024. Broiler production, we raised by 50 million pounds to 46.68 billion pounds. Seeing some signs of strong demand there, relatively good prices, and that's producing those incentives to increase production of broilers. Turkey, on the other hand, demand weakness, sending some signals to reduce production and indeed for 2024 we reduced our production forecast by 40 million pounds to 5.47 billion pounds turkey prices have been particularly weak lately so for 2024 and we expect that price weakness and demand weakness to carry through the new year we reduced our turkey price forecast 16 and a half cents per pound to 110 and a half cents per pound and that would be down just about 30 cents per pound year over year so we're seeing a lot of weakness in the turkey complex 
Taking another look at USDA's cattle on feed report, Gary Crawford has more. Friday's USDA report on December cattle feedlot activity has no clear clues to where the beef industry is headed. USDA livestock analyst Mike McConnell says yes, the report has December placements into feedlots, reversing their recent upward trends, going down from a year ago by 4%. But he says this is a return to a more normal wintertime number. Feedlot inventories January 1st up 2% from a year ago. Heifers and heifer calves may making up 39.7% of that inventory. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. A coalition of nonprofit industry and non-governmental organizations has formed the Alliance for Sustainable Packaging for Foods. The alliance aims to advocate for a holistic and harmonized approach to food packaging regulation globally, balancing environmental sustainability with food safety. Some of the priorities include engaging in the EU's ongoing negotiations on packaging and packaging waste rules and monitoring packaging-related regulatory developments in Canada. The alliance emphasizes the reduction of packaging waste without compromising food safety and seeks collaboration with regulators worldwide. The organization aims to demonstrate that sustainable, cost-effective, and high-performing packaging can be achieved without compromising food standards. The alliance includes working groups to drive priorities and action plans focusing on government relations strategies and technical approaches for packaging regulations. USDA recently announced its latest round of awards through the Market Access Program. Chris Jaquette of the Foreign Agricultural Service provides an example of how the program works. Funds could be used for activities in most markets, obviously with a need or an identified possibility of a market. For an example, let's say India. India this past year had some major trade policy wins for the United States where some tariffs were reduced. So some of these commodities that benefited from these trade policy changes can now focus some of their map funding to better promote and gain some customer and in their export market, be it with maybe a reverse trade mission, bringing expected buyers to the United States to see industries or sending folks to India to perhaps do a demonstration or other marketing event that would benefit the exports of their commodity. The U.S. Department of Agriculture will be holding a public hearing on proposed amendments to the federal marketing order for California raisins. The hearing is scheduled for February 13th and 14th at the Raisin Administrative Committee offices in Fresno. The proposed amendments would reduce committee membership, eliminate the designated Cooperative Bargaining Association member seat, lower quorum requirements, remove producer district representation, and add language regarding ownership of intellectual property. Other recommended amendments include removing the requirement for separate member and alternate nominations, remove factors for establishing marketing policy, add language to clarify the quality of reconditioned raisins, and add authority to accept voluntary contributions. The hearing will continue until all amendments have been addressed, and if the hearing results favor the proposed amendments, USDA will conduct a producer referendum. UC Agriculture and Natural Resources is hosting the 2024 Joint Pear Grower Research Webinar next month. Sponsored by UC Cooperative Extension, the Lake County Department of Agriculture, California Pear Advisory Board, and Pear Pest Management Research Fund, the webinar is scheduled for Thursday, February 1st, beginning at 8 a.m. 
Some of the topics of discussion will include identification and characterization of branch dieback disease fungi, evaluation of new bactericides for control of fire blight of pears, and monitoring of brown marmorated stink bug in Lake and Mendocino counties. Following the break, there will be presentations on the development of a transgene-free gene editing system in European pear, along with management strategies for pokeweed and blackberry in organic pear orchards. More information about the webinar is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. More internship opportunities in ag. That's coming up on this line of hours. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association is providing multiple internship opportunities for students to learn about different aspects of the cattle industry. Internships are offered in NCBA's offices in Denver, Colorado and Washington, D.C. New this year, NCBA is launching a producer education and sustainability internship focused on implementing the cattle industry's sustainability goals, as well as supporting the Beef Checkoff-funded Beef Quality Assurance Program and providing educational resources to cattle producers to improve land management, animal health, and profitability. The internships will occur in the summer of 2024. NCBA and the Public Lands Council are also now accepting applications for the summer 2024 public policy internship in Washington, D.C. from May 20th to August 23rd of 2024. This internship allows students to work jointly with NCBA and PLC to advance policies important to the beef and sheep industries. Applications are due by February 23rd. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. A group of land-grant university extension economists and social scientists recently offered their take on 2024 from the perspective of economic trends and challenges for producers. Rod Bain goes over their projections and possibilities in this edition of Agriculture USA. What might impact ag producers and their bottom lines in 2024? It's part of the big question of how do I invest in a way that returns profitability at the end of the day? The challenge of the higher cost of establishing yourself as a farmer and maintaining that opportunity. We haven't done much with respect to really expanding demand domestically. Where's the growth going to come from? It's likely going to come from those international markets. I'm Rod Bain. A panel of land-grant university extension experts provide their take on this year's possible top stories from an ag-econ perspective and a grower-level perspective in this edition of Agriculture USA. What will the top agriculture-oriented stories be for 2024? Perhaps the better question from a producer point of view is what will be the top economic factors of both concern and possibility this year? A recent National Association of Farm Broadcasting panel discussion focused on that latter inquiry. Three land-grant university economists and social scientists weighed in on their perspectives. Purdue University's James Mintert is among those behind the institution's ag economy barometer. Recent questions posed to grower participants of the barometer revealed one out of four growers made or were making operational changes associated with climate, with the scope of changes ranging from cover crops to capital improvements, such as tile drainage. They're starting to make some changes, and the changes they're making are pretty much across the board. They're using some technology that they can purchase every winter or every crop season, and they're also looking at making some longer-term investments. The producer's approach to farm operation and succession planning is moving away from the concept of a family farm and more towards a family business, according to the University of Missouri Scott Brown.
down. This due in part to realization that technological investment and diversification is needed. When the family members come back, they're looking at different forms of agriculture to be their part. It's all about risk diversification. When you look at just how volatile markets have been, technology plays a key role in that. Today, you cannot avoid too long investing in new technology because there's returns to that technology. That diversification, according to Iowa State University's Chad Hart, includes a greater effort in direct marketing to consumers. The example of a traditional Midwest corn and soybean farm growing produce and having an on-farm stand was driven by two daughters returning to be part of the operation. So they had something off the farm in town, and then they said, even though we're in a semi-rural part of Indiana, maybe we could get into the food delivery business as well. Over time, they've been able to dramatically expand the operation in terms of gross revenue. Consumer demand continues to be an economic driver for producers, regardless of commodity. Scott Brown offers an example, proteins. Understanding we're chasing a consumer that's changing in that we no longer go to the grocery store and look at the meat case and say, is it chicken, pork, or beef that's cheapest? It's which restaurant do I pick that tends to be that center of plate protein? Chad Hart says the adjustment to consumer trends is not just domestic, but global as well. An income effect as well, I would argue that's even larger as we're looking at those international markets. Because especially on the meat side, what we do often see is that as income growth occurs in countries, there's a definite shift in the proteins that they're demanding, in the way that they absorb those. At the same time, too, we're trying to figure out how to deal with the different cultural practices that they have. It's all in managing and working with that consumer. James Mintert notes a main concern for most growers is high input cost especially in these contexts. Producers are concerned about a cost-price squeeze, but maybe different than some prior periods, is that they are way more worried about input prices than they appear to be based on the risk of lower crop and livestock prices. Then there is the matter of an election year in 2024. Mintert says producers tend to be anxious about any policy and regulation changes in the aftermath of an election, regardless of party and in turn, how to adopt to such changes. Scott Brown says that is due in part to the education gap about agriculture between producers and most consumers and policymakers who do not have a farm background. They know what it means to their bottom line day in and day out if we're going to change something regulatory-wise. Those trying to put regulations in place, and this is no different than consumers or land-grant universities. Those of us that have a farm background continue to dwindle in numbers. So as you address these very difficult issues, if you don't come from a farm background, I think it's sometimes hard to understand that regulatory burden and what it really means. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. If you want to try growing your own garden transplants from seed this winter, Gary Crawford has some tips from an expert. In many places across the country right now, there is certainly truth in this song. Baby, it's cold. Outside. And uh, when we talked the other day with Kansas State University Extension garden expert Warren Upham, he confirmed it. We were down to about six degrees this morning, and that's actually warmer than it was yesterday. We're having a heat wave. Oh, hell yeah, heat wave, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything is relative, but seriously, winter is not the favorite time for most home gardeners who are just sitting around waiting and waiting and waiting for spring. 
But Ward Upham says there's a lot of gardening we can do right now if we decide to try growing our transplants from seeds instead of buying those plants this spring. Seed catalogs are showing up in mailboxes right now so we can get busy ordering seeds and getting things ready in our homes to plant those seeds. Now, for those of us fairly new at this, Ward Upham has some advice. First, you do not want to use garden soil. The reason for that is it's much too heavy. Those roots are going to need lots of oxygen in order to grow well. And the garden soil is just too uh, heavy to allow enough oxygen to get them off to a good start. And garden soil could harbor some pests and diseases instead. Ward says we should use very fine seeding mix made for that purpose. That will give you the best results. Also a very good idea uh, to have some sort of bottom heat for your seedlings so that they come up faster. So there are grow mats that provide a little bit of bottom heat I get that seed up a little bit quicker. Well, yeah, a little bottom heat always helps this time of year. And what about what about watering those seeds? Just make sure they stay moist. Best if you use kind of lukewarm water instead of cold water, just to make sure those plants stay warm. And uh, just check them. You'll get an idea after a while how often those need to be watered. If you use that media, uh, that potting soil, it's going to drain really well. So it's going to be really difficult to overwater. So don't worry so much about overwatering as underwatering. And to help us reduce the time that we spend on watering, especially early on. Before they come up, you can put something like a clear plastic wrap over the tops of whatever you're growing those seeds in to trap the moisture. Now, you have to watch it close. So as soon as they come up, it needs to come off. But that way you're not having to keep them watered constantly until they come up. Now, coming up next time, we're going to hear about the number one top mistake that people make when growing plants from seeds and also a kind of well a strange kinky technique i think for making those plants stronger and tougher something you might not want people to see you doing they might have concerns but we'll leave it at that until next time this is gary crawford reporting for the u.s department of agriculture don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just need to catch the news at a different time You can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet NewsHour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet NewsHour, and it's available on both Android and Apple devices. This is the Agnet NewsHour, and we will be back with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet NewsHour. Brian German has this week's Almond Update. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. While at the Almond Conference last month, Vice President of Member Relations for Blue Diamond Growers, Mel Machado, highlighted what kind of issue that plant bugs are becoming for almond growers. We've been seeing uh, damage related to plant bug, dam- uh, plant retic infestations grow here over the last few years to the point where it started to become a significant proportion of the damage, you know, 25, 30, 35 percent. But I didn't like the trend. So we sounded the alarm with the university researchers to try to figure out exactly what's going on. And because we know that leaf footed plant bugs have been around for a while, but uh, the stink bugs that had been around for decades suddenly started working over on almonds. And so uh, with the loss of some chemical materials that were pretty effective on these things and the fact that they're, they're kind of hard to monitor in the first place, we've seen this thing grow and become a significant pest for a lot of growers. 
Uh, one of the things that uh, I had not heard a lot about was the box elder bugs. Mm -hmm. uh, you noted that it's not overly common, but something that's being seen a little bit more. Yeah, actually, one of the other presenters noted box elder bugs, and I was surprised by that, too, because I just had one instance of a situation coming out of the Stanislaus River near Escalon, going in and working over the Sonora variety. They, they very clearly preferred that variety over anything else. And I did note the other presenter said that it was an issue around repairing areas, so that made sense. It, it's a limited uh, pest in almonds. It's out there, and it's kind of like it's lousy if it's you, but very few people have a problem with the box elder. This is a stink bug and plant bug issue. And this is a, a conversation we've had, but it, it seems like it's definitely ramped up a little bit. Somebody noted that fields look shook early mm -hmm. in the season from some of the damage out there. There's a few growers that were surprised. In my first instance, I literally stumbled upon a grower and how's it going? Oh, and his comment was, well, I'm sure glad stink bug doesn't like almonds. And I said, it does. And we went out there and it looked like it had been shook. And this was April. So uh, one of the other presenters had uh, a good image there of, of property. You, you say, well, that, that orchard's been harvested, and it wasn't. It was literally nuts that have been shed from the tree. So uh, when it comes in, it can really cause significant losses. Besides the brown spot, the brown spot is a result of late-season infestations where the kernel doesn't drop or the almond doesn't drop. If it hits you in April and May, it will shed the crop. And that was one thing uh, you noted, uh, ink stain or uh, brown spot, there are some questions there. What can be kind of looked at or things to consider with that? Yeah, pellicle ink stain is one, you know, pellicle being the peel. It looks like a pencil lead that's been run across the peel of the almond. And it, it's one of those things, that's, it's kind of how you identify Sonora. Sonora has ink stain more than any other variety. But we've seen it uh, in other varieties showing up here. It's the result of an infestation of Aspergillus niger, a fungus. There's a whole school of thought about when that comes in. It might even come in as early as bloom, interestingly enough. Uh, but it, it's not a major problem. It, it very rarely grows to a size on the peel that it becomes a reject. Brown spot is the, definitely the one that becomes the reject. The difference is if you look closely under a hand lens or a magnifying glass, you don't see a probe. You don't see a penetration mark where the, the insect has actually probed that kernel. And for those of you who have never seen it, it literally feeds on like a mosquito feeds on you. And uh, you had some figures, and without trying to pick your brain in terms of trying to recall all of those slides, but just a comparison between 22 and 23 seems like there's a little bit of a difference from navel orange worm to yeah. some of the things. It, it seems like there's been a maybe a bit of a flip-flop there in some regards. Well, just moving through the years, you know, starting back in 2014 when I started looking at it, uh, in 22 we saw a reduction in amount of damage attributable to plant bugs. Uh, and I, I want to say it's largely because of greater recognition by the growers. They were watching for it. We've sounded the alarm pretty loud and pretty hard on this. And I believe that people were watching for it. This year, it's a matter of the navel orange room has literally just overpowered it. And the example I used in my presentation was, you know, you're a grower. Last year, I had 4% rejects. 75% of it, or 3% of the total, is brown spot. This year, you're a grower with 20% rejects, 75% of it's navel orange room, or 15%, and then he had some ants and he had some mold, and 15% of that damage is attributable to brown spot, which is 3%. It's the same as last year, but you're not paying attention to it because you're, you're so focused on the navel orange room. And that was uh, one thing that seemed to be kind of driven home was just the value of getting a breakdown of that damage. Yes. How, how integral is that for growers to, you know, just have a, have a good idea of what they're dealing with? 
you know, for Blue Diamond members, for Diamond growers, uh, you can request a breakdown on, on damage in your delivery lots that are coming in, and I strongly encourage growers to do that. You can request it up front on a representative number of the deliveries that come in. If you need to, you can get it afterwards as well. We, we hold those samples up to December. So I, I would ask people, it's better to do it up front. It's actually cheaper to do it up front, and we don't charge for the service. This is something I really want growers to do because it does you no good to be chasing an ant problem if your problem is plant bugs or chasing a plant bug problem if your problem is navel orange room. You need to know what your target is. And it seems like, especially in, in years like this where things might be a little tight, making better targets, some of those more precise decisions seems more important maybe than in years past where you, you might be considering it. Uh, this, yeah. is, this is the time to, to maybe pull the trigger on that. It's very important to, to have the knowledge of what your issues are in the field. Uh, for for non-Blue Diamond growers, I hear a lot of guys say, go to the hauler, get hauler samples. Well, that's too late. Uh, orchard samples, well, that helps, but again, that's too late. Is, is there some means, a lot of hauler shellers will keep samples for their own library and their own verification. You can go to them and see if they have those samples and break them down and, and see what the damage is. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thank you, Brian. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be right back. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Now for more news, USDA has just given the green light to more fertilizer production expansion projects. Here's Gary Crawford. We know uh, that for far too long we have been over-reliant on others to supply the fertilizer necessary for crop production. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says the fertilizer production expansion program is designed to help entrepreneurs pay for projects to improve or expand existing fertilizer production facilities or create new ones, Vilsack told the American Farm Bureau Federation Convention in Salt Lake City Monday. Today, uh, we're announcing seven more projects that will receive up to $50 million to expand access to additional fertilizer that will lower costs excited about the opportunities uh, in the Midwest in particular to see this happen. So far, USDA has given the nod to 40 fertilizer production projects. There are 50 more proposed projects waiting in the wings for funding. So there's a tremendous opportunity for us to substantially expand access to fertilizer and lower costs for farmers. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. A new USDA pilot program gives small-sized beef processing facilities an opportunity for their products to receive USDA grading. Rod Bain reports. The familiar USDA grades for beef at your local grocery store or retailer are given by Agricultural Marketing Service graders. Now there is an effort to expand grading capabilities in a remote fashion. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack explained during a recent visit at the National Western Stock Show in Denver, Colorado. We're announcing what we refer to as the remote grading pilot. It's going to be available to any processing facility that does not currently have a full or part-time grading system in place. The pilot involves remote graders using plant photographs and videos to issue grades for beef cuts and carcasses. The secretary notes a feasibility study on such a system, which occurred last year, involved 20 processing facilities. We said, what if we train people to take really good photographs of the carcass so that people grading it could see what they would see if they were looking at the carcass in real time? And what if that grader was someplace else and had a few minutes in the day to look at that photograph? and to make a determination of, well, that looks like it's prime, that looks like it's select. And what if instead of charging $114 an hour, you just simply said to the grader, how many minutes did you spend looking at that photograph? 
making that determination. And the parent will say, well, eight minutes. Well, that's a heck of a lot less than $114 an hour. That can be $15, $16 an hour. Now, all of a sudden, it makes financial sense. As Secretary Vilsack says that would create both cost savings and flexibility for small size processors. We're only going to charge the producer for the time spent reviewing the pictures and making the determination. The secretary also noted the importance of expanded access to the fee-based voluntary grading services for smaller facilities to increase the value-added component of their products. Turns out that if you can put that choice label on it, you might be able to get $300 more for that carcass than you would otherwise get. More information about the pilot program is available online at www.ams.usda.gov slash services slash remote dash beef dash grading. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Agoro Carbon Alliance has surpassed 2 million acres. Here's Michael Clements with more. Agoro Carbon Alliance, a global leader in the agricultural carbon market, announced that the company has hit a significant milestone, 2 million acres enrolled in sustainable practices across the United States. CEO Elliot Formal shares an update on Agoro Carbon's progress and their continued partnership with farmers and ranchers. We are incredibly proud to be partnering with more and more farmers and ranchers across the U.S. who are implementing practices that will promote soil health, biodiversity, water conservation, To date, we've enrolled more than 2 million acres and counting across 26 states, and we've reached this milestone within our second full year of enrollment and continue to demonstrate that we are delivering impact for farmers, ranchers, and our planet. And importantly, I would say that these 2 million acres are conservatively estimated to sequester or remove more than 7.5 million tons of carbon over the contracts. Formal explains what the 2 million acre milestone means for farmers and ranchers. Well, it shows our dedication, Agoro Carbon's dedication to advancing sustainable practices and improving farmer and rancher success and ability to deliver meaningful outcomes. So carbon payments, carbon financing represents an opportunity for producers to gain additional revenue while implementing practices that will improve soil health, resilience of their crops. And we at Agoro Carbon are offering multiple contract options to farmers and ranchers, offering prepayments that can support implementation of practices as well as payments upon issuance. And then we are also supporting our producers over the contracts and beyond the contracts with our team of grower success representatives that are ensuring that the practices are delivering long-term benefits for our producers. Agoro Carbon remains committed to advancing regenerative agriculture in 2024 and beyond. Our vision is to enroll millions more acres in the coming years and to generate a substantial volume of high-quality science-backed credits. So by collaborating with farmers, ranchers, and industry partners, Agoro Carbon will continue to create positive and lasting impact on the climate, soil health, and agriculture. We'll do this by building upon our focus on innovation, industry-leading science team, boots-on-the-ground grower support. We are also backed by Yara International, which is the industry's leading global crop nutrition company. And we are fortunate that with our combined knowledge and innovation that we are able to offer producers unmatched resources and support as we work with them on their sustainable agriculture journey. Michael Clements reporting. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. 
Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.